I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of the global ebook store Rakuten Kobo. We have a regular procession of authors who visit the Kobo offices. While they're here, I get a chance to learn a bit about their careers, creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully, you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. I met today's guest on a clear glass dance floor on top of a former grain silo that had been converted into a contemporary art gallery in downtown Cape Town, South Africa, where we were watching a cellist perform inside a giant inflatable plastic sphere. And now that I know him, that feels like a totally natural environment for Andreas Suvaliotis. Over the course of the next few days, I discovered that he was also an entrepreneur, an author, and a lot of fun to be around. He puts himself right out there, both in life and in his book, and even in the title of his book. As we always do on Kobo in Conversation, I'll ask Andreas about the books that shaped him and shaped his work, but we won't stop there. And I probably couldn't stop him if I tried. We'll be talking about Misfit, Autistic Gay Immigrant Changemaker. Andreas, welcome to Kobo in Conversation. It's great to be here. You open the book with math and numbers. Can you tell us how an obsession with calendar got you your first TV appearance? <laughs> well, I think to give some perspective to that, you have to let your listeners know that I'm on the spectrum. Uh, and as you know, a lot of kids on the spectrum end up with extraordinary skills in numbers or music. I happen to be one with both. And the one that came out first, I think, was my ridiculous numerical brain. And so at the age of four and a half, I was staring at a little airline calendar that my airline-employed dad had brought home and noticed all the numbers that were in red that were different than the other numbers. And those, those of course, turned out to be Sundays. And so believe it or not, with the, the, the empty brain of a four-and-a-half-year-old, I was able to memorize all 52 of the Sundays of that year. And then shortly thereafter, I was able to compare one year with the next and realize that it was easy for me to extrapolate very quickly and to be able to predict then what day of the week it would be today. So that was such a ridiculous skill and such a bizarre skill that in no time somebody told somebody, somebody told somebody else. And before you know it, I ended up on national TV in Greece as a first grader doing calendar predictions in front of millions. You describe numbers and data as having an almost emotional impact on you as a child. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, and again, I probably sound like every other autistic person that you'll ever speak to because numbers can have a profound meaning and and can reveal all kinds of things to people with atypical minds like mine. And uh, yeah, I don't know if I would call it emotional, but I would certainly call it very impactful. I would call it almost a bit of an obsession, right? I would recognize things. I would recognize patterns. I would need to be fed numbers all the time. And there's this kind of bizarre sequence in my life because it went from me loving numbers to me loving weather and climate statistics because they're full of numbers and full of unpredictability. And from that, all the way to me one day becoming one of the earliest marketers in our country who tuned into climate change and started an eco uh, business. You were a musical prodigy, uh, gifted with perfect pitch, a musical family, musical friends, great teachers. You were practicing four hours a day at seven years old and performing in concerts and on TV. There's a track that heads to a music degree at a conservatory, a performance and teaching, and you jumped off that track. Mm -hmm. What pulled you off? 
fatigue. Uh, and, and <laughs> it's true. It's the honest answer. And to be honest with you, I think fatigue is more manifests itself more quickly and often more intensely in neuroatypical people like me. Right, the the rigor and the the discipline around those four hours a day and the predictability of the path at some point became kind of very very unsavory to me. So I got completely burnt out, um, blew out of it, crushed my parents' hearts because they were um, assuming that this would be the dream for them and their kid, um, and found my way through life differently. Music is still a big part of my life; it's a fabulous hobby, but. I had become absolutely terrified of the predetermined path to, uh, you know, music, classical music stardom. Knowing what you know now about, as you say, atypical minds, do you think that there would have been another way through that that wouldn't have had you burn out? Probably. I'm not an expert. I'm far from an expert. And I didn't write this book from that perspective. Mm-hmm. No, of course. Uh, the, the book is, my story is truly being offered out there as a bit of a case study for people to harness whatever is different about them. But I can tell you for sure, there are much better ways to today, certainly with the expertise that we've gathered over the last few decades, to harness what exists in atypical minds like mine. Introduce us to your mother and father. My goodness. <laughs> this is this is a very cool personal interview. So my mother and father were were actually both very progressive products of their time. Uh, I grew up in Greece. I grew up 50 years ago in Greece. And so as you can imagine, that was nowhere near as progressive a society as Canada 2019. So in that environment, however, my parents were unusually progressive for their time and for their place. And so in some respects, they inspired me to to not be afraid to be different and stick out and be more progressive than those around me. In other respects, however, the fact that they were still people of the 1970s and 80s and of that land was still so oppressive for someone like me. Uh, There was no diagnosis for autism back then, certainly for people being as high up on the spectrum as I was. Um, There was horror and terror around things like gay, being gay. And so uh, by the time they found out that they had a gay kid, they went into an absolute tailspin and there is all kinds of horrid stories in the book. the, The one terrible thing I talk about in the book, and it still kind of breaks my heart every time I repeat it, but it is very true, I grew up with a progressive dad who used to say to me that he would rather have a dead child than a gay child. So there, therein lies the contradiction in my life, right? He was progressive. He was admired by everybody as being progressive. He inspired me to be progressive. And yet, by today's standards, he was incredibly regressive. You knew you were gay from age seven and, and then grew up in Greece in the 1970s with that knowledge. Was that part of what motivated a move to Canada? Big time. Big time. I, I mean, this is this is my chosen homeland precisely because this is the most inclusive society in the world. I was the, the proudest immigrant ever, and to this day I'm the proudest Canadian by choice ever. When you came out to your parents, your mother sent you to a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Can you uh, talk about that appointment? Yeah, it was actually an enormous turning point in my life, to be honest, because I was such a crushed, naive, terrified little kid kid. I was 22, but I felt like a little kid and I had absolutely no self-esteem. And so when your angry, horrified mother says, I found the best psychiatrist in Winnipeg and I'm sending you to them right away. Frankly, I was clinging on to a little bit of hope that maybe whatever it is that's so different about me could be fixable, curable, as, as pathetic as that sounds today. And so I rushed into that meeting and I was kind of excited and I met this guy and I sat down and I said, he says to me, why are you here? And I said, well, because I'm gay. And then he looked at me and he said, so did someone send you or did you come here on your own choice? And I said, no, my parents sent me. 
And so he closed his book right away and looked at me and he said, we're done. And I said, what do you mean we're done? And he says, we're done. It's not you that has to see me, it's your parents. And I found that to be so reinforcing. I remember driving back to my home from that and literally singing in the car. Because for once, I felt confident. Did your mom ever go? Of course not. <laughs> Both you and your brother are on the autism spectrum. You always knew your brother was different. How does his being on the spectrum manifest itself? So he's a little deeper in the spectrum. So he would be probably by most people defined as medium functioning. His extraordinary skills are very different than mine. His are photographic memory, but so extreme that you honestly would not believe me if I described examples. Like he would meet you today. And if he met you again in 37 years, not only would he tell you the date, time, weather, and circumstances of the meeting, but he would describe every button that you had on your shirt and what color was it, and maybe even how many gray hairs you may have had in your beard. And how long was it before you realized that the two of you were on the same spectrum? It was only when I actually began to, on the advice of a very, very good psychologist friend of mine, I started to study all things spectrum in order to help my brother. Uh, my brother didn't even wasn't even allowed to know how he was different until after both both our parents had passed away. Until then, the topic was so taboo. So when we were finally orphaned, uh, and I, I don't mean this in a bad way, it sounds bad. When we were orphaned, and I sat down with my brother to talk to him, talk him through this, everything I had studied in books about the spectrum started to reveal to me that I was just like my brother. I, I had I was at a different spot in the spectrum with different skills and different peculiarities, but I was absolutely convinced from that moment. And then eventually I went out and got a formal diagnosis and so on. Your father fought against that diagnosis for your brother practically until his dying day. Why was that so hard for him? Because we all, yourself and myself included, grew up in an era where different was not particularly welcome. But the, we were all trained to fit in as much as possible. That fitting in, marching along with everybody else, looking and behaving like everybody else is one of the most important things, supposedly. And frankly, I've only learned in my later life how incredibly important it is to harness the things that make us different as opposed to quashing them. Uh, there is a forward to my book um, by a man who happens to now be the prime minister of our country. And there's a phrase in that forward that literally summarizes the whole message behind the book, which is, he says, too often in our quest to fit in, we end up quashing the very things that could make us special. April Fool's Day is coming. <laughs> it's only a few days away. The 1st of April was a big date for your family. Yes, for my mom and for us as her kids. So my mom, who was very atypical, although I don't know, I don't think she was neuro-atypical. I don't think she was on the spectrum, but she was a bit of a hippie and she was a bit colorful that way. And she just loved pranks. She absolutely loved pranks. And that was to me, when I look back, that was one of the signs of how much she loved different and she infected us with a love of different. So yeah, she was the craziest prankster in April Fool's. Some of them are almost too embarrassing to actually talk about in this recording, but they're in the book. <laughs> and they're great, and you should absolutely read them. Your career started in computer programming, veered into recruiting, then into software, then into marketing, and then after a period as a hired gun CEO, you dove into eco-responsible business with green rewards. Was there a particular thing that sparked that change that made you decide that it was time to focus on businesses that benefit the environment? 
It was passion, and it was also curiosity. I guess it was the fact that I have a weird brain. When I realized uh, back in 2007 that all of my peers in the marketing industry were barely comprehending this thing called climate change, and meanwhile, I was getting it so deeply um, that I knew that us marketers trying to sell things to billions of consumers out there would be faced with a completely different game come 2019. I realized for the first time in my career that I had a niche. I had an advantage over everybody else, courtesy of my weird, numerically obsessed brain. And so I had this crazy idea that in my particular corner of the marketing industry, the points industry, somebody could go out there and create an eco-points program that would resonate more and more with consumers over time. And I looked around the world and nobody had had the same idea yet. Nobody had tried it. So that's why I thought, hey, maybe this is my one and only invention moment in my life. Turns out I had two, but still. It was it was something I just could not pass up. And when you look at things that can motivate changes in behavior, did you find that in that in green rewards people were making different choices than they would have made otherwise? Absolutely. Absolutely. The incentives in our society work perhaps better than just about any other country in the world. Canada has a reputation as being the the most points obsessed nation on the planet. And so again, that's that's the art I had always mastered, but I had only mastered it before as a commercial art, you know, trying to get you to switch credit cards or to switch airlines or to switch banks, all of a sudden I realized that we can use the exact same incentives, the exact same thinking to get you to behave better as a citizen towards the environment. And it absolutely worked. The acquisition of green rewards by Air Miles illustrates some of the challenges of embedding an entrepreneurial culture inside a more established one. Can you, can you talk a bit about what that process was like? Yeah, and and I'll I'll talk about it in general because it is you you just made a general statement about it and you're absolutely right. It's often the two things don't fit together very well. I have to tell you that the main motivation on the Air Miles part to absorb our crazy little entrepreneurial venture back then was to allow us to infect the larger mothership with a little bit of our DNA. But still, those tend to be very tough marriages because a large, very profitable, very stable and successful shop tends to have a lot of safety embedded into its DNA. You know, let's not mess this up. It's working and it's worked for a long time. Whereas the nutcases like me and my team that show up with a crazy fun entrepreneurial kind of venture are used to taking much larger risks every single day. So marrying kind of a risk-taking culture with the safety of saying, look, this has always worked. Don't rock my thing. It doesn't tend to work very well. So if you were talking to other CEOs today who are looking at how to infect that entrepreneurial culture inside a culture that's more stable. Are there things that you took from that experience that would be useful for somebody who was trying to make that same thing happen now? I would say the first thing you should not do is do not hire an autistic entrepreneur because that makes things even more intense. I think I think what made things uncomfortable uh, for the mothership in trying to integrate our crazy culture in there was the fact that autistic people like me have no filter, right? If I if I don't like you right now, it would become pretty evident from the things I'm saying to you or from the way I'm looking at you. And so it, it's difficult. I mean, there's a whole chapter in my book that I call unfiltered, and that's the term my own partner came up with for me to describe me. I am unfiltered. And so take a risk-happy, adventurous entrepreneur, stick him in a very risk-averse, uh, staid culture, and add a layer of autism on top of that, it is trouble. So don't do that. Don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We met through Young Presidents Organization, YPO, where you were when you joined 
I think the only openly gay CEO in the organization in Canada. And we're talking an organization of thousands of CEOs. What did that say to you about the state of Canadian corporate culture at that time? Nothing surprising, <laughs> I'm sure. But that was also a dozen years ago, 13 years ago, in fact. Um, I was a little bit concerned about joining because even though I've always been a misfit and I've kind of enjoyed sticking out a little bit, that one felt like it may have been a little bit too much, right? It felt like I was joining a, a boys club of Bay Street and all of a sudden I was going to be the different one. So I had a few very deep conversations with the people who were around my recruitment into the organization they actually came right out and said, we really want you to join. We need you. And I remember the expression, we need you. And what I found was that that was yet another useful moment for the world that I triggered by accident or I triggered without planning it. Just like the first time I joined a company as a senior executive, as an out senior executive, and suddenly inspired this little slipstream of younger, more junior employees in our company coming out. Uh, and they hadn't come out until they saw a senior exec being gay. Similarly, when I joined YPO as a gay person, a whole bunch of stuff changed. People started to talk about it. People started to bring us their teenage kids so they could meet my partner and me and, and, and sort of normalize some concepts in their heads. Now there are all sorts of, there's actually a global network now within YPO of uh, gay and lesbian members. And actually at the conference that you and I were at a few weeks ago, we celebrated the arrival of our first ever trans member. So the world has changed. And when you look more broadly across the Canadian corporate landscape, do you see that same change manifesting itself now? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, the thing I should tell you with, with extreme pride is um, YPO Canada has just decided to become the first region of YPO in the world to appoint a national chair for diversity and inclusion. And you're looking at him. I have taken on the role for the next two years. And the reason I've taken on that role for the next two years is because I no longer want our organization to be playing catch-up with the business community. I want us to be ahead of the business community. But everybody's moving in the right direction, and the business community in our country is modernizing rapidly. There are a few times in the book where you describe something that looks like imposter syndrome as the new person at the boardroom table or as the recent immigrants surrounded by non-immigrants, as a newly hired CEO who doesn't want people to you know, feel like he doesn't know what he's doing. Was that a frequent struggle for you? Is that something that came up often? Yes, for sure it was. Um, it comes with a territory of being different. It comes with even more with a territory of being on the spectrum. Because you kind of always feel... You always feel like you're trying to be like everybody else. And of course, when you're on the spectrum, you're trying even harder to be like everybody else. And there are certain obstacles you can't overcome. Absolutely. It's something that I think we've all fought against, or at least I know I have. What advice would you have for other people who grapple with that, who are sitting at that boardroom going, I don't know if I belong here? I would start by saying to them that we are also lucky to be living in the year 2019 in Canada. This is this is the time to be different. In fact, there's never been a better time for different for difference to be celebrated, recognized and harnessed. And so first of all, you know, because the times are so much better than than I remember them, you're lucky. Enjoy your luck. The second thing I would say is Figure it out. Figure out what part of the different aspects of you is the thing you feel the most passionate about. You know, if you're, if you're passionate about something that is weird about you, harness it. Use it. It'll probably make you stand out in a hundred different ways. Now, you are the founder of Carrot Rewards, an immensely popular platform that combines rewards with wellness. For those who aren't familiar, can you describe what makes Carrot different? 
from other kinds of rewards programs. <laughs> well, Carrot is actually not even a rewards program per se. What we do, it, Carrot is a very popular app in our country. Over a million Canadians use this app every day. And what's special about Carrot is we give you the rewards that you are already hooked on. So if you happen to fly a lot and you collect aeroplane miles, we give you aeroplane miles. If you happen to go to the movies a lot, we give you scene points. So Carrot is one of these ultra-flexible platforms that is designed to appeal to every single citizen because, as I said earlier, every one of us is hooked on some form of incentive anyway. And so essentially, the simplest way to think about Carrot is a substitute for the old way that we used to promote wellness. The old way was running ads on TV and saying, Michael, go get your flu shot. The new way is having this super friendly app that lives on your phone that every time you let it talk to you, every time you let it influence you and get you to walk a little more or take a quiz about the flu shot, anything you let it do to you, it rewards you with it a little bit. And you describe a lot of this as being based on the science of behavioral nudges, of those small cues that help to influence behavior. How effective has that been for people? So effective. If you will allow me to brag for a second. Of the million plus people that we have in the app, about half a million would be considered sedentary because they walk less than 5,000 steps a day. That's typically the cutoff for sedentary behavior. Believe it or not, that half a million People, Canadians on the streets all around us, are now walking 21% more every day on average than they used to before they had our app on their phones. Just by finding an incentive that matters to them. And I can tell you how incredibly tiny that incentive is. If you live in BC right now, you earn exactly one aeroplane mile or two scene points every day that you achieve your step goal. That is the tiniest, tiniest little incentive, and yet the whole game of it and the notion of chasing the reward has had such a profound impact on the whole society around us. You know, we had one of our users write to us recently, and my colleagues were practically in tears. She wrote to thank us for the fact that she has lost 55 pounds because of Carrot. And so we're changing the world, and and I go to work every day with this incredible gratification about changing the world. Carrot does a lot of its work with governments to promote healthy lifestyles and habits. How easy or how hard is that particular aspect of the business? Both. <laughs> Look, what's what's really, really easy and natural about it is when you have an idea that is so naturally and visibly better than the old way, when you talk about the fact that you can take a half a million people and get them to be that much more active, it, it's a no-brainer for any policymaker. I mean, the, our governments exist for the betterment of our lives, obviously, right? So from that perspective, it is the world's easiest concept pitch. From the the difficult part, as I'm sure every private sector person would admit, is working with the public sector is a little longer, a little more rigorous, a little more at times cautious a process than elsewhere. But once you achieve what you say you will achieve, it is you are so embedded and you are such an agent of change for them. So ultimately, it's very gratifying. Let's talk about the book for a second. At what point did you decide that there was a book in you that needed to get out? When I was doing a lot of talks at universities, I, I for some reason, I, I've spent the past decade being a, a favorite for university talks on a whole bunch of topics, leadership, green, wellness, incentives, and so on. And somehow, the more I would tell my story, the more it would seem to add up into a requirement to kind of tell the story 
in its entirety. And so after I sold my last business and I was sitting at home, frankly, not really able to do much because, you know, when you sell a company, sometimes you have these things called non-competes. Well, during that year of, you know, non-competing, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I actually pulled it together not to make a penny? And the thing I should mention to your listeners is I will never make a penny from this book on purpose, that all the proceeds of the book are going to my favorite um, inclusiveness charity that I helped create. But I wrote the book for your kids, frankly. I wrote the book for everybody's kids. I, I, I was such a late bloomer as a misfit because I was so afraid to be a misfit, and yet all of us are misfits. And so the whole, the hidden message behind my book is figure out what's different about you and harness it. And this started as a self-published book. It did. It did. Yeah. I, I honestly, again, I was writing it for my friend's kids. Bizarrely, the self-published book became a bestseller in no time because universities started grabbing it. I remember the day when the University of Calgary wrote to us and said they wanted to order thousands of copies so that every one of their new students would be encouraged to read this book before the start of their first academic year. And I also remember when they flew me out there to speak to all of all 6,000 of their new students for the year. And that was definitely the largest speech I've given in my life, you know, in a giant arena. Um, but, you know, it became a bestseller. And again, I didn't care about the pennies. I was making sure I wasn't making money from it. Now, of course, one of the largest publishers in the world picked it up because they figured this is such an important message and it is the era of misfits. And so it resonates with a lot of people. Going back to childhood for a second, what was the most formative book that you read when you were young? Hmm. You know, it was Julius Verne's Around the World in 80 Days. And I'm not entirely sure why. I remember being And I don't know if I would call it formative necessarily, but I would call it exceptionally absorbing. I I inhaled that book. And I remember reading it three times. You know, like a year later, I'd forgotten enough details that I was dying to read it again. The curious mind in me, the explorer in me, the the, the, the globe, the future globetrotter in me, all of those things came together in that intense curiosity about that book. And then as you were starting to write your own book, what books did you look to when, uh, when you were starting that process? A dear uh, friend who deserves a shout-out here, her name is Carrie Harris, gave me some wonderful advice. Uh, Carrie suggested that I should read this book called Shimmering Images. It's a tiny little easy read on how to write a memoir. How do you select the most significant images from your memory and hang stories from them? It was another little book I inhaled. I totally inhaled it. And frankly, it had a real impact on me. And its, it's subtitle is actually called a handy little guide to writing memoir by Lisa Dale Norton. Last question. You describe yourself as a misfit. You make it clear that being a misfit is a good thing. Do we need more misfits? Do we need more people to come out about their misfit natures and wear that more proudly? I think so. I think every bit of good change that we're seeing in society around us is driven by misfits. I mean, if you if you take it to the most basic level of that logic... If we're all the same, nothing will change. Nobody will stick out. Nobody will create a next little revolution, whether the revolution is called Apple or liberal government or whatever you want to call it, right? It is, things change all the time because people stick their necks out and they say, I'm thinking differently. I'm behaving differently. And you know what's interesting about our society? People love different. People follow different all the time. And so why not make yourself succeed a little more, feel a little more gratified, harness what's different inside of you. Andreas, thank you so much for joining. My genuine pleasure. That's it for this episode of Kobo in Conversation, a podcast about books and the authors who write them. To discover the books you just heard about or to follow us, 
please visit www.kobo.com conversation. This podcast is produced at the Kobo Audiobook Studios here in Liberty Village in Toronto, Ontario, Canada.